0: Hello and welcome to Carbon Matters, a podcast journey in which we seek to explore and inform on topics related to carbon removal and the crucial role it could play in tackling climate change.
1: Hi everybody and thank you for joining us today. Welcome to this episode of Carbon Matters. This time we'll be exploring ocean carbon removal and all the exciting opportunities which are available in the field. My name is Chloe Foster from the Applied Negative Emissions Centre and I'm joined by Adam Gray from the Carbon Removal Centre and Sophie Gill who will be sharing her expertise with us today. Sophie's a PhD student at the University of Oxford working as part of the greenhouse gas removal by Enhanced Weathering Consortium. Her research specifically focuses on the reaction of calcifying marine plankton to carbon dioxide removal methods so thank you very much for joining us today Sophie. Maybe we could kind of go into how the ocean itself Kind of acts as a carbon sink and and the kind of areas in which it does this carbon removal on its own
2: sure so i guess the the role of the ocean basically comes from its role in absorbing carbon dioxide so the primary cause of climate change is the increase in the concentration of greenhouse gases in our atmosphere for example co2 which has increased by more than a third in atmospheric concentration since the industrial revolution through our burning of fossil fuels And greenhouse gases block heat from escaping from the atmosphere into space. And that means the planet's heating up. And the ocean is kind of our ally in this, really. It it kind of helps to prevent some of the, the worst effects of climate change because it absorbs carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. But when dissolved in the ocean, CO2 turns into an acid. And the ocean has absorbed between about between a quarter and a third of the CO2 we've emitted since the Industrial Revolution. So it helps to reduce warming in the atmosphere but at a great cost to ecosystems as the acid that is produced when CO2 dissolves is very damaging to marine life. That's why we see widespread bleaching of coral reefs, for example. So, yeah, we've, we've got to find some way to alleviate that, that damaging effect. But um, essentially, the ocean on longer timescales acts to reverse the effects of carbon dioxide increase in the atmosphere so I'm from the southeast coast really near Dover so obviously the the chalk cliffs
1: are something that is kind of a staple in the area but having done some research into this they they actually potentially have quite a big role to play in uh, carbon removal and the the process of their creation as well Um, I think this may be something a bit closer to your research if you could kind of touch on that a little bit.
2: Yep sure so um, I specifically work on uh, the response of tiny uh, calcifying plankton so plankton that make their shells out of calcium carbonate which is the the main component of limestone and the type of plankton i work on are called coccolithophores quite a large strange word Um, but they're very very cool they make intricate little structures out of the calcium carbonate they're very very beautiful to look at under a microscope and essentially on long time scales those coccolithophores and other plankton that make their shells out of calcium carbonate they live, and then when they've, when they've died, they sink to the bottom of the ocean because the calcium carbonate is denser than the surrounding seawater. And over long timescales, millions of years, um, when these end up on the seabed, they get cemented into, into rocks, they get compressed, and that rock is limestone. And that's what the Dover Cliffs are predominantly made up of, actually. The reason they're so white is because they're pretty much entirely coccolithophore um, assemblages so yeah and that's the reason that's now above the ocean is because on very long timescales as well you have tectonic so uh the tectonic plates move and you get uplift of of that chalk from the from the seabed to the surface to the coast so that's why we see them today they're very beautiful that was really interesting to see kind of something that's so close to home potentially being
1: also quite impactful so thank you for sharing about that yeah those are kind of ways in which the ocean kind of does it itself How about ways in which that we can either kind of accelerate the process, maybe through enhanced weathering methods or kind of managing this ocean um, kind of pH levels and alkalinity and things like that? Um, So
2: there's there's various ways that have been proposed to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere using the ocean, because, as I said, we we know that it's a major sink for CO2 from the atmosphere and uh it's I th- i'm going to get the number wrong here but uh it's something like it, it's many 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 times bigger than the um the reserve that is in the atmosphere today and being able to increase the capacity for the ocean to absorb carbon dioxide would be good but we need to find ways of doing that that doesn't increase the acidity too much and result in these damaging effects on on corals and uh, other ecosystems in the ocean So, the way that has been proposed to do this is by, like you said, managing the pH levels of the ocean using a combination of enhanced weathering or ocean alkalinity enhancement, which is specifically the scheme which I work on. And enhanced weathering and ocean alkalinity enhancement effectively mean the same thing, but they're just two slightly different ways of going about the same end goal. So, the end goal of both of these processes is to shift the the acidity levels of the ocean back towards their pre-industrial levels so raising the ph of of the ocean the the model for this comes from uh, actually something that works on geological timescales which is the weathering cycle so on geological timescales we when we Well, well, not when we weather things, when things are weathered on land, um, this results in alkaline discharge to the ocean. So the opposite of acid is alkaline. And what that does is that shifts the pH levels of the ocean higher and that results in more CO2 drawdown into the ocean, kind of acts like a buffer system in this way. And then we have more burial of carbonate material. So like I was talking about with the coccolithophores on long timescales in the ocean where it gets locked up as rocks, essentially. This acts over million year timescales. So it's not working on human relevant timescales at the moment. So the aim is to artificially accelerate this process or simulate it. So enhanced weathering is an idea to artificially accelerate the rate at which weathering is happening and artificially accelerate the rate at which we're adding alkaline materials to the ocean um, or you have so that's commonly referred to as enhanced weathering and then there's this other scheme called ocean alkalinity enhancement which is more of an uh, a simulation process so where you might have ships for example go out into the ocean and artificially uh, distribute alkaline minerals directly into the surface ocean so you cut out the kind of middleman in that way so you're not doing the weathering process you're just doing the bit that is the end product of the, the weathering process. And both of those schemes would hopefully, theoretically, result in pH of the ocean being raised, better impacts on ecosystems alleviating um, damaging impacts on uh, on whole bits of the food web in the ocean, and also raising the pH back to pre-industrial levels.
0: Thank you, Sophie. Can you just go back on the, uh, the drawdown concept of what you're describing there with the CO2? So you're obviously talking there yeah. about... Uh, how both of those processes affect the the pH level and locking up of carbon in the the enhanced weathering you talked about in terms of the calcium carbonate, but in terms of how does it directly pull down the CO2 the ocean per se does it directly or is it always via the earth or uh, a land or other mechanism
2: so uh it's It's a complicated chemical process, basically, where the ocean uh, kind of acts as a a buffer system. So essentially what we have in the ocean is a store of carbon that exists in different chemical forms. So when CO2 dissolves in the surface ocean, it exists as dissolved carbon dioxide and that dissociates. So it splits up into an acid. And then uh, we also have different forms of carbon in the ocean as well, which are more alkaline forms. So we have something called bicarbonate ion and we have something called carbonate ion. And essentially, those species exist in a chemical equilibrium. And the, the system shifts between those different species of carbon, depending on which external perturbations from the atmosphere or otherwise are exerted on the system. And essentially what happens is when you add alkaline materials to the ocean, it increases the levels of bicarbonate and carbonate ion relative to the amount of co2 that's dissolved in the ocean and what that does is it shifts the system away from that dissolved co2 and because the way that co2 dissolves in the ocean is whichever one of the atmosphere or the ocean has more carbon dioxide in it it will move from that that reservoir to the one that has less so essentially what happens is when you have a lower level of dissolved co2 in the ocean when you've added alkaline stuff that means that now there's more CO2 in the atmosphere directly above the surface ocean compared to in the surface ocean. So that draws down extra CO2 as well. Um So I hope that made sense. If not, I can go into it in a little bit more depth. But
0: uh, yeah, I think that that's yeah, there's more more in it than I thought. But yeah, I think that that makes sense. So thank you. Yeah,
1: cool. So obviously, there's there's lots of different methods there in which the, the ocean is is kind of doing this carbon removal um and also kind of promoted by kind of human action uh adding to this as well um how do you think that we can scale this up are there any particular kind of barriers currently to um you know launching these schemes kind of on a more national or a more kind of international scale what are the current challenges that are facing that that limitation
2: so a lot is the short answer. Uh, it's, it's very difficult at the moment, especially as a scientist, to give any concrete answers on this because there simply isn't enough research to give proper answers to a lot of these questions. And uh, we've seen recently in net zero pledges from governments that they really are relying very heavily on these net zero, sorry, negative emissions technologies to reach their net zero targets. So it's brilliant that we've seen, like China's said that they're going to be net zero by 2060, for example, Joe Biden, president-elect, has said he's going to rejoin the Paris Agreement and he wants to be net zero by 2050. The UK wants to be net zero by 2050. And I think uh, South Korea and some other countries have recently made pledges too. And it's fantastic that they're doing this, but it's really important to realise that a lot of their their pledges are really based in uh, these negative emission schemes becoming a reality. So technologies that can actively remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere being deployed and there's there's just not enough research at the moment to to say that we could do that safely that that's for a number of reasons but if I could maybe just touch on my specific area of expertise because I don't want to overstep the bounds and talk about something that I don't know enough about but uh, for ocean alkalinity enhancement for example we we haven't had any field trials for this um, and to be honest I don't think we're really at the stage where we could safely do a field trial and that would be a an absolute definite prerequisite for for doing this in in the environment so i specifically work on the response of plankton to carbon removal schemes and to check whether there would be any damaging impacts of alkalinity enhancement on plankton that make their shells out of calcium carbonate because it might be that they really don't like it and they don't grow anymore or or they really like it and they grow loads but then that means that other um, plankton would be outcompeted for example and one of the major challenges as well is working out whether if they keep pace with the additional alkalinity input, there's uh, been some suggestions in the scientific literature that, that they might calcify more. So they'll make more calcium carbonate um, for their shells. And a byproduct of that process is actually release of carbon dioxide. So you might be in a situation where you're trying to remove carbon dioxide, but the plankton actually re-release it. And if they re-release it in large amounts, then that would render the scheme completely just net no impact and you spent a lot of money trying to do something which doesn't actually have an impact so there's lots of unanswered questions particularly for ocean alkalinity enhancement and i think one of the dangers of the net zero pledges we've seen is that they're only going to become a reality if if these schemes are properly researched and funded and um, we make sure that we're doing doing something that's safe for both ecosystems and and the and the humans
0: and What's the extent of the research that's taking place in this topic at the moment?
2: There's plenty of people researching these schemes, but I would argue there needs to be a lot more. So the grant, which I'm funded by, was uh, was a grant funded to the University of Oxford, as well as um, other institutions in the UK, like the University of Southampton and, and others. And it's specifically a scheme looking at whether we could uh, do enhanced weathering on the order of 10 gigatons of carbon removal, By the end of the century i think i think that was the the aim and essentially there's different components of the scheme so i'm working on the ecosystem response side and then there are other partner universities working on the practicalities of grinding up rocks fine enough that it would be able to be easily weathered because that's one of the other things that's a major barrier to implementation of enhanced weathering schemes Um, You can't just dump rock in the ocean and expect it to weather, especially not big bits of it. It needs to be small enough so that it's got a large surface area to volume ratio so that it will weather quickly. And we also have to have enough material available to do this on a large scale. Um, Where do you find a load of rock that no one needs, that's not going to kind of come from cliffs like Dover, for example, and ruin our natural environment? So, yeah, there's a lot of logistical challenges to face here. But yeah, going back to the question, uh, I think there's there's definitely enhanced weathering work going on in the UK. I think there's some groups in America and possibly Germany as well, I think, who are working on um, on this. And there's also a real active body of research into ocean iron fertilisation. There's quite a few people around the world working on that. And that's one of the only negative emission schemes involving the ocean that's had any field trials. So it's, there's been... A, approximately 10 I think field trials of ocean f- iron fertilization since I think the 1990s so that has been quite well researched compared to other, other schemes.
0: Presumably when you talk about field trials when, we're, when you're thinking of that on an ocean scale and you know potential scenario where you've got I think the description you gave is potentially you know ships going out changing the pH level by the addition how would you go about that when the diffusion and, and distribution of that is going to be so, so quick and so vast? How do you look at the a localised area impact, for example?
2: That's a really good question. And that's actually something that um, was a major um, sticking point for, I think, the ocean iron fertilisation field trials. They they were worried about this. They wanted to pick areas where you're less likely to have um, distribution of the, the iron into areas that you maybe don't want it to go into. So they picked areas of the ocean that are currently iron limited. So uh, there's not enough iron in the ocean for phytoplankton to uh, to function properly because they need uh, iron to perform a lot of their cellular processes. So they they picked the Southern Ocean uh, commonly, and they would normally do this above uh, plateau areas that are quite physically separated from other areas of the ocean. So we I think people try to pick areas where ocean circulation currents are such that you wouldn't have widespread distribution to other areas of the ocean, and they also didn't add it in very high amounts, so they added it in small patch fertilization areas. I think a lot of the processes that have been uh, been proposed uh, do work off natural processes which already happen in the ocean, but we 'd be talking about simulating them to higher levels than they normally happen at, or uh, yes much much faster time scales than they currently happen at okay. and that, that is definitely a risk. But, I mean, my argument would be you definitely, I mean, responsible scientists would never do a field trial without making sure that in the laboratory it's not been properly researched first. And the other thing is we're already conducting a huge experiment, I guess, with the fact that we're putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and expecting our world to deal with it. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, I don't know, conceptually thinking about this as more of a waste removal uh, problem so we're, we're producing carbon as a waste byproduct of our our lifestyles and our industrialization and the responsible thing as stewards of the planet is to clear that up it, it definitely is a concern we don't want to go and do something that would be more damaging or just as damaging to, to ecosystems to the planet but equally we've got to do something because what we're doing at the moment is it's really bad so I think we can kind of think of it as we're already doing something that's perturbing our planet, so actually doing something to to rein it in is is kind of the right thing to do, I think.
0: Sure, got you. Yeah, so uh, sort of an approach of balancing balancing the competing risks in a in a yeah. responsible manner. Yeah.
1: So, um, kind of obviously, it's a it's a huge question. How do we get to the point where we can trust um, the potential? kind of advantages that this may have and the potential processes that we use is it a question of more investment more funding in research is it a question of kind of getting more and people more people involved with the, with the process because obviously as you mentioned there's lots of there's very strong relationship with kind of ocean health and biodivers- biodiversity health and ecosystems things like that potentially you know collaboration across uh, different environmental communities is that something that you think would potentially kind of accelerate this process and getting it getting it somewhere where we can use it
2: yeah definitely i think collaboration between uh different groups who are interested in the health of the ocean and carbon removal is imperative uh, to make sure that we get enough expertise to be able to be confident in the conclusions that we draw because this isn't just a question of uh scientifically whether it works as well it's whether it's acceptable to the public and whether different stakeholders like corporate organizations and governments have confidence in the conclusions that we can draw so, yes, absolutely. And I've recently been involved with an initiative called uh, OceanCDR.net, which is a website which has launched very recently. And it's it's a platform to get engagement across different disciplines and different areas, um, get scientists having active conversations with policy makers and corporate organisations, as well as between between sectors, which or within sectors, sorry, that maybe people don't Currently have connections with each other, so the idea is to provide a forum and a platform for those conversations to happen online and on record as well. Because I think, I think having the conversations online as well means that research is being done in a transparent um, and kind of open access way. And the website's really great as well in terms of the the bit that I've been involved in is providing resources, um, which are summaries of literature, scientific literature, or perhaps press releases. But in easy to understand language. So for policyholders, for example, who may not have a scientific background, they're then able to go, OK, I understand what this paper said. And I have a bit more of an understanding of exactly where the research gaps are and what we should be funding. Um, so there as well, it's directly applicable for funding bodies to have a look and yeah, see where the research gaps are and uh, what we need to fund to be able to make these schemes more of a uh, more of a priority.
0: Well, that sounds great in terms of, you know, addressing the accessibility piece, but also still basing it and keeping it related to the science. That's obviously a a huge challenge and a a great initiative, that sounds. So we'll definitely make sure that we've got um, links to that in the show notes and um, people can take a look at that and actively encourage that further engagement. Sounds a great initiative. I
1: think that is something that is so important when we talk about removal and negative emissions tech is that some of the more kind of, science-based ones it's not really as accessible as saying well we're going to plant a loads of trees you everybody can imagine what that looks like and the function and the process of that, that might take but it's something you approach someone with an enhanced weathering it's well, what, what does that what does that actually entail things like that so obviously it sounds like a really great resource to check out
2: yeah it's it's one of the things that i find uh is difficult with communicating this research sometimes is some sometimes people don't have uh any pre- pre-existing knowledge about exactly how the ocean works really in terms of um, how it absorbs carbon and that's not a failing on their part at all it's just it's never really taught for some people at school they never they never learn about it and especially as adults it's not something that you encounter kind of daily uh, more and it's not a process that you're directly familiar with unless you work in in the kind of oceanography space so yeah kind of making uh, this research uh, communicable.
0: So with your uh, research Sophie, and, and uh, similar related uh, investigations is there a is there a golden nugget or a key piece that you're looking to try to prove or is it a case of gathering just more data of supporting information or is, is there something you're trying to crack here?
2: Um, good question so there's definitely something which I'm personally trying to crack so my research question for my PhD which is mainly do the specific species that I work on. Uh, are they going to re-release carbon dioxide if we add alkalinity to the ocean? That's kind of the key question which I work on. Um, I won't be able to answer it for the globe as a whole uh, during my four years as a PhD student, but hopefully I can add to a body of knowledge. um, So the few species that I work on, the first kind of tentative evidence of what's going to happen if we do this, because at the moment we don't have any data on that at all. In terms of a wider scale, what people are working on, it's it's all the questions that we're interested in it's what happens to the growth of plankton what happens to um to their calcification their calcium carbonate production and also just logistical things like i was talking about we don't know how we can logistically have enough rock to put into the ocean for enhanced weathering schemes uh we don't know how to effectively grind it up not using a massive amount of fossil fuel in the process um which again would render the process a bit net useless because you'd just be trying to remove carbon dioxide but have so much input of fossil fuels to do the initial bits of the process that it it just doesn't net remove carbon so yeah there's there's a whole range of questions and i don't think we're really at the point where there's one thing that people are really trying to crack it's it's a whole uh team effort and yeah there's there's such a myriad of outstanding questions that yeah there's not kind of one thing that everyone's working towards
1: so much stray a little bit from your specific uh, research area, but there's also the kind of realm of blue carbon in terms of um, that kelp or seaweed farming and the kind of protection of mangroves, things like that. I wonder if you could kind of share some knowledge on that that you, you might have.
2: Yeah, uh, so I don't specifically work on those schemes, but I have done uh, a pretty wide survey of the literature for the resources that I've been producing for the Ocean CDR website um so i do have some knowledge on blue carbon systems and essentially the idea is to restore uh maybe damaged mangrove or seagrass ecosystems or promote their their spread across a wider area than they currently um inhabit and the idea with that is to prevent co2 emissions which might come from degradation of those habitats so if we have environmental decline that would result in a release of co2 from those areas if mangroves are destroyed because they they are a massive sink for co2 so if we destroy them then that co2 is going to get released to the atmosphere so preventing the degradation of those habitats kind of prevents extra emission of co2 and if we promote the the spread of those habitats, then we're going to get extra drawdown of CO two. So that's kind of the idea with with blue carbon. Um, but blue carbon also, kind of in the literature, it covers quite a wide range of things. Even carbon store in terms of large animals, large mammals in the ocean, for example, sharks or whales. Like an individual whale has a huge amount of carbon, and if that sinks to the the seafloor, then we have, I think it's called deadfall. That process, um, that's that's a massive amount of carbon which might be stored and i don't know the numbers off the top of my head but i think the decrease in whale populations has resulted in an extra emission of co2 which wouldn't have been there if those um if those populations had been conserved so i think there's a definite crossover here with kind of ocean biodiversity groups and i think it would be great if there could be more conversations between those groups and carbon removal uh, research groups because i think that's a key area as well where it's very tangible for people they can kind of go oh i care about whales i care about biodiversity i care about animals in the ocean it's something that people can kind of see and it's kind of got an emotional attachment to it i guess as well if you see a degraded mangrove habitat i don't know about you but it makes me feel sad it makes me feel sad that i see an ecosystem that's that's been destroyed or um yeah hearing numbers about whale populations declining is is, it's an emotional attachment to that so i think if we can get biodiversity groups talking to carbon removal groups, I think there's maybe some more persuasive action there that could be taken um, for persuading policyholders for example to um, to invest in in these technologies and the research
1: I'm just thinking about whale populations now it 's never something I considered in terms of yeah
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean in terms of um, the actual kind of carbon budget in the ocean. Pardon the pun, but the the whale populations aren't they aren't a drop in the ocean, but they they are not on the scale that like if we restored whale populations to their pre industrial levels, for example, that wouldn't be on its own anywhere near enough to to counteract um, the impacts of climate change. So that's probably an important caveat with that. But I think it's definitely something that would help in in the process, and I I think that's really the key thing with carbon removal. I think sometimes people a kind of, they they want a silver bullet. They want a, a scheme that we're going to be able to roll out, and it's the one thing which will counteract climate change and kind of solve the problem. And actually, that that doesn't really exist. And I think in reality, we're going to need a whole portfolio of climate um, engineering methods to help to actively remove carbon from the atmosphere, as as well as reducing our our emission levels.
0: That's probably a very good bit to I think probably draws to a close there. As you say, though awareness of the the portfolio requirements but interesting to get that better insight into the the potential use of the ocean and solutions there but also an appreciation you've given us of some of the the challenges that remain ahead with that and some of the interesting work that's going on to, to try to get to the bottom of, of those challenges. I guess just a final one in terms of audience or people that are looking to get more involved in this area maybe based on your experiences are there ways in which you would encourage people and solutions for getting involved?
2: Yeah uh, so I think you can get involved in a number of ways I think if you're someone who's interested but you don't want to work on it directly I think supporting um charities not not for profits um and kind of just just making yourself aware of the research and doing some some reading um and yeah maybe kind of donating to charities which promote ocean health that's that's a really great way to get involved Um, if you're someone who's got a a bit more funding someone who's a, a maybe a corporate for example or um you're looking to invest i think I think that the most important area you can invest in at the moment is the research of these technologies. Um, I think somewhat anyone who's claiming that they can do this safely straight off the bat at the moment, they're, they're probably wrong. So I think investing in research so that this can be done safely is really important because one of my major motivations as a scientist is to make sure that we have enough research behind this, that we can go, right, this is a good idea, this is a really bad idea. And at the moment we can't, we can't fully say that. So I think investing in research is really important. And if you're someone who wants to work on this, I would say there's, there's loads of um, different areas that need, um, that need research. So you can work on the science of these processes. You can also work on, if you're more of a social scientist, the kind of public acceptability of these processes. Um, and also if you're a kind of science communicator, Uh, talking to scientists and encouraging them to talk about their research in uh, an easy-to-follow way, I think, is important for making sure that people, wider public, uh, trust uh, these technologies and and trust the the process of the research.
0: Great summary, Sophie, and a a great way to bring us to a close there. In particular, I think you've given a description of the different ways in which people can uh, get involved and also balancing the desire for immediate action that we all have um, but a realization that research into areas like this is very necessary initiative to be doing fascinating science so on behalf of our audience and and Chloe and myself thank you very much pleasure to have you on and enlightening us in the the deep world of the the deep blue so um, thank you very much
2: that's great thank you for having me
0: Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Carbon Matters and we look forward to bringing you more insights, discussions and developments from the fascinating field of carbon removal. In the meantime, if you'd like to find out more on today's topic, give feedback or get in touch, then please click or swipe on over to our website or other social media platforms, details of which can be found in the show notes.